The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today we are going to talk about cyber breaches and what does that really mean to the companies and what does it mean for the legal issues. And I had been reading this article called Sony Hack Ruling a Double-Edged Sword by Mark Mao and Sheila Pham, and they are both attorneys with Kaufman, Dolowich, and Volek. And we've had Mark on before. He's He writes prolifically about cyber issues and privacy issues. And so let me tell you a little bit about each of them. First, let me, if you didn't hear Mark before, here is a little bit about his bio. Mark Mao is the vice chair of both the Technology Practices Group and the Financial Services Practices Group at Kaufman, Dolowick, and Volok LLP. And he works out of this firm's San Francisco and Los Angeles offices. His practice focused primarily on mobile cloud and big data companies with a particular interest in their software licensing and privacy law needs. He has substantial experience advising and litigating on behalf of tech companies in the Silicon Valley. Mark has represented companies across a broad spectrum of industries, including software, hardware, biotech, green tech, and medical devices, defending their directors and officers and shareholders and insider disputes, in addition to servicing their intellectual property needs. And he advises businesses on the evolving areas of privacy laws and cyber liability, insurance, and where there is regulatory and legal issues which are continuing to change and evolve. So that's a little bit about him. Of course, you can find out much more about him at our website uh, at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and also at his website. And But let me first tell you a little bit more about our uh, co-guest and that is Sheila Pham, and she concentrates her practice in labor and employment law on behalf of management as well as professional liability defense. And she's handled cases involving employment matters such as wrongful termination, retaliation, Family and Medical Leave Act, and the California Family Rights Act, wage and hour discrimination, and class action suits. And she's also advised employers 
regarding employees exempt or non-exempt status, vacation and sick leave and employment agreements. And there is so much going on in privacy law with regard to employment and employees. So this is a, a wonderful team that we're going to be talking to right now. And you can learn lots more about them at kdvlaw.com and our website as well. So thank you, Sheila, and thank you, Mark, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Mark, so first of all, let me just ask you about this article, um, Sony Hack Ruling a Double-Edged Sword. What did you mean by that? Um, well, Marie, when I first read uh, the Adobe decision, uh, or at least the order in that case that first came out, um, I, I was concerned just because it's, it, it, the tone and the way in which the court wrote about uh, her view on potential harms and, you know, possible future harms and what may or may not be awarded uh, resulting from that. Although, you know, understanding that that was not a, uh, it, it was not a completely dispositive motion that, you know, ended the case one way or the other, uh, I just thought that it was extremely broad. Uh, and she seemed to have uh, left that fairly uh, open-ended. Uh, but then when you look at the Corona case uh, by Judge Klosner, I think that he was, um, you know, fairly short and curt regarding what he thought may or may not be compensable uh, in a, a data breach case. So, you know, with that in mind, I thought that uh, Corona was a departure from Adobe, Um now, does in, in many have... ways, which ultimately limits the ability of uh, claimants to uh, seek uh, future uh, damages on the basis of future harm. Okay, so let's just bring it down to people who aren't familiar with these cases, whether it's Corona or whatever. And let's just tell people I'm sure they read about there was a big Sony hack. So let's talk a little bit about what those were and what the court was considering so that my audience kind of understands what it was because they're not all lawyers and they haven't read all these cases. So tell them what happened and what the issues were in the Sony case in terms of recovery of what, you know, what damages there were and then how that related to Corona. If you could do that, that would be great. Sure. Uh, So the Corona case uh, basically involved uh, the hack by, well, you know, the self-professed uh, hack by the North uh, Korean uh, government in protest to uh, you know, the film, the interview, uh, on uh, the hack basically on Sony Entertainment. Right. Um, you know, stealing various, um, uh, you know, information not only about the company, what it was doing, but also things including employee data that included uh, uh, personally identifiable information. And, you know, in some cases, uh, PHI or personal, uh, personal health information as well. Right. So, you know, a corona was ultimately a case regarding that. Okay. And so what was happening in that case was what? The, that um, the employees and, and wanted to get redress for the hacking. Is that right? Uh, correct. That is correct. Okay. And so then the judge... Uh, now maybe you can go back to what the judge was saying that what in terms of when there is a hacking i think this has been a huge issue across the country right about Correct. whether a hacking um it, it whether there's whether there's like future damages like in the asbestos cases right they they that the the courts have been saying well if you were exposed to asbestos then there may be a future harm right uh, correct so so the so the issue 
the issue in the Corona case that I found uh, that was critical was basically the issue of whether or not you can award uh, future damages for uh, you know potential exposure of your your PII to hackers right. uh, or to people who access it without authorization. Right. Um, you know the court looked at that and basically uh, opined that what was compensable were the precautionary measures and the remedial measures, such as, you know, uh, increased credit checks, uh, you know, identity theft protections and things like that. Um, and, and that's essentially what the court limited its, uh, you know, its opinion in terms of what it thought were cognizable damages for the negligence cause of action. Right, right. So... Um Let's talk a little bit now, Sheila, about the Clapper decision. Tell about that yeah. case, what that's all about, so that my audience understands what we're talking about. Yeah, so this case is brought by um, a group of attorneys, human rights, labor, legal, uh, various organizations, uh, to challenge the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which uh, permitted surveillance of individuals who are not uh, United States persons. Uh, they challenge this as being unconstitutional um, under the Fourth and First Amendments, mm-hmm. Article Three, and um, the separation of powers. So the plaintiffs claimed that under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, there's a reasonable likelihood um, that their communications would be intercepted. The court said that this was not sufficient to constitute um, an injury in fact in order to satisfy uh, the Article Three standing in order to bring their claim against or challenging uh, the FISA. So the court, the court stated that allegations of possible future injury are not sufficient and the threat injury must be certainly impending to constitute injury in fact. And the, the main phrase that is the takeaway of this case is it's focused on um, the injury needing to be certainly impending. So the court in Clapper decided that there was that the plaintiffs did not have standing uh, based on their allegations that there was a reasonable likelihood that their communications would be intercepted and that the threat of um, such likelihood compels them to avoid certain emails and phone conversations. The court found that this was not certainly impending injury in order to satisfy Article Three standing injury. Yeah, so the court's grappling with future injury, and besides the asbestos cases, what other kinds of cases that you can think of um, are analogized when the plaintiffs are bringing up these kinds of cases, that there is an impending future harm? Well, uh, sorry, this is Mark. Uh, yeah, in, yeah. in the Ninth Circuit, uh, cir- uh, I think uh, what most of the courts you're seeing analogizing it to are the environmental cases. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So then, you know, I mean, I think asbestos would probably fall under that, but that, right. that's not necessarily the only type of case, right? Right. Because I know that that is one that everybody is well aware of, at least, that they're, that that is um, when you're exposed to it, you have a higher incidence of that. And when you're, you know, I guess what was it? One of the cases, and maybe the judge said, "Why would this sensitive information be stolen if it wasn't intended to be used?" And oh, right. So that, that's that's uh, that's uh, what, what I was quoting from uh, Adobe in terms right. of 
I, I mean, look, I mean, uh, you know, but perhaps, you know, some of it is just a, uh, a, a fear, uh, you know, on the part of those of us who represent companies. Uh, but I, I do think that when you read language like that, just as a lawyer, it's a little bit problematic, right? Because obviously you're never going to be able to stop. Well, the chances of you actually stopping the hacker, right, <laughs> where he is, identifying him and saying, hey, you know, when you, when you first took this information and you gained access to it, what were you intending to do? Right. Uh, you know, let's just be real. I mean, the chances of that are, are, are very, very slim. Right. Uh, does that mean that, you know, people who suffered uh, from loss of their PII uh, you know, should not have some type of redress, you know, for it? Obviously not, right? But then on the other extreme, right, just to, to, to jump to the conclusion that, hey, um, I've had my information taken from me, that necessarily means that, uh, you know, I'm going to lose X amount of dollars or, um, you know, the institutions that service me are going to lose an X amount of dollars uh, because of that wrongful access. Uh, I think it's quite speculative, right? But yeah, it's kind of hard. They, they, you know, they, the FBI, and obviously the Secret Service and others know about these hacking sites where this information is sold. I mean, the guys who, who, who hack sell it. You know, I mean, there's lots of sites, and I've seen those sites where they're selling that information, and that information is going to, I mean, it's for money. They're going to sell it for money, and then somebody else is going to use it and try and steal somebody's identity. But it is more challenging to figure out what those damages would be. And that there's no question. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's, that's really uh, what the courts view their job to be, right, which is uh, ultimately the people who, you know, dish out and decide uh, what is just and what is not, and ultimately, you know, in that opinion of justice, you know, how much, alloc- how much is going to be allocated to each side. And, and what you're really seeing in these opinions um, you know, even though sometimes, you know, on its face they may look the same, you're going to see judges differ, you're going to see lawyers differ, you're even going to see, um, you know, different organizations, um, you know, have differing opinions. It, but, but what you're really kind of getting down to is just that, you know, as technology Im- uh, improves, as data flow increases, and as um, the value of data uh, increases in that type of economy, uh, how do we how do we quantify and how do we measure you know things like fundamental principles of fairness when you know that data is lost it, using rules from you know systems and paradigms and contexts which don't really apply in a data rich economy uh, right. that's what you're really seeing the courts doing uh, right. They're struggling with that. Yeah, they are struggling with that. So, what are some of the other circuits doing in terms of? Um, Following Clapper, I mean, let, let's go back to Clapper and, and what the, uh, well, let's let's kind of go back. What was the precedence before Clapper in terms of future injury? Yeah, in the Ninth Circuit before Clapper um, was a case called Krotner versus Starbucks, which uh, came out in 2010, so about three years before Clapper came out. Um, and that case also, similar to the uh, Corona versus Sony case, involved uh, employee information getting stolen. And the court in Plotner used the standard that injury in fact occurs when plaintiffs face a credible threat of real and immediate harm. And so that's the um, kind of the takeaway phrase from Plotner. Right. And so 
um, they they bring in experts for this, right? To say what is the immediate and and um, you know real harm that's very you know pending <laughs> impending harm. Isn't that what they do? They just bring in the the experts to tell what that is. Is that correct? Well, at least as you're deciding the Article Three standing, which is kind of the first issue um, in deciding injury and fact. The court talked about uh, where sensitive personal data was improperly disclosed or disseminated into the public, um, thereby increasing the risk of future harm. The court said that this was sufficient to constitute injury and fact um, in order to satisfy standing. Right, right. And then when they get to, after they have standing, then they have to prove that there is that injury, right? Yeah. Okay, then they have to do it. Okay, so uh, what after Clapper, what was the precedence then? So a couple uh, cases since then, uh, Mark touched upon Adobe Systems. <clears throat> it seems in the Ninth Circuit, they're not necessarily uniformly following uh, Clapper or Krotner. Sometimes they follow both. Sometimes they at least state that they're following both at once. Um, in Adobe Systems, uh, the court found that the plaintiffs had alleged a concrete um, very real imminent threat of, of future harm uh, sufficient to satisfy the Article Three standing under both Krotner and Klapner. So they kind of use portions of uh, the main phrases from Krotner and Clapper mm-hmm. to, to uh, establish Article Three injury. Um, in Holland versus Yahoo, that just came out in May of 2015. Tell about uh, that. What, tell what that one was. And Yahoo, that was uh, consumers, right? Was that consumers? Or what? What? What was that? What was the? What were the facts of that one? So, so this market in Yahoo, basically, uh, there were allegations that um, consumers who were not email subscribers of Yahoo Mail right. were getting their their I guess their outgoing but incoming to Yahoo emails scanned and read by Yahoo. Right. Um, so, you know, there's various allegations of, you know, violations of, uh, of their rights, particularly under the California, uh, the, the CIPA, uh, what is that, California um, oh, uh, Invasion of Privacy Act. Right, That's right. right. Uh, where, you know, it would be, uh, basically courts have generally construed uh, where there is an, um, an expectation of Privacy, um, you know, for there to be kind of like eavesdrop, eavesdropping into those types of communications, uh, there must be consent by both sides. Right. So, and and you know, there's there's definitely very, there's a bunch of nuances there. You know, like there's law and like you know, if it's a landline versus it's it's a wireless, and then you know, and there's written correspondence, electronic emails. Those nuances we aren't going to get to, but basically the gist of that is that. Non-Yahoo email subscribers are alleging that they were essentially being, uh, easiest lay analogy would be, illegally wiretapped by Yahoo with their um, outgoing emails to Yahoo email subscribers. Mm-hmm. And did, what happened with that case? Uh, so that case has not been disposed, but most recently, Judge Coe, the same judge that wrote the Adobe opinion, uh, basically uh, allowed for class certification, even though she did not permit a similar type of case. Uh, I think this is back in 2010. That was basically brought against Google for Gmail services. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you read the, you know, the, the secondary authorities out there, 
don't generally say, well, you know, perhaps Judge Cole can reconcile the two cases because, you know, the, the class um, that's at issue in Yahoo is more limited than the class in Google. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think in my personal opinion, I just think that Judge Coe has a very strong opinion of what she thinks about kind of like the new data economy and you know, the rights of individuals in that. And I think she's, you know, she's, um, I think she's using the bench to make herself heard, which is, you know, um, if you subscribe to a, a broader uh, view of uh, a role of a judge within the judicial system, I think that's what she's doing and in many ways doing very well. Mm. What about, what are some of the other circuits doing? Because, you know, we've got kind of a, you know, Ninth Circuit has been overruled many times by the U.S. Supreme Court. What about other circuits? How are they seeing future harm? Well, so so what's interesting is is the Clapper decision, which Sheila pointed out, right? If you really follow the Clapper decision, first of all, that's not a data breach case. Right. Um, let me, it, it, it certainly involved data information that was being carried across lines and, you know, wiretapping and invasion, and, and certainly privacy issues, right? Right. But... That case, since its uh, since its holding in 2013, has uh, used, has been used by numerous circuits, and we're talking about the vast majority of data breach cases out there, to to, to stand for the proposition that under a, uh, a certainly pending um, standard, most of the data breach cases do not pass Article Three standing test because uh, plaintiffs or claimants cannot. Uh, allege uh, cannot allege that they've suffered injury. Right. So that is why that is so important. So in terms of the other circuits, uh, currently, if you want to talk about post-Clapper decisions, post-Clapper in 2013 decisions, you're really looking at those uh, the three uh, cases. First of all, out of the Ninth Circuit, which so that's you know the Sony PlayStation case, Adobe. And now Sony Pictures case. Boy, poor Sony, huh? Yeah, <laughs> kind of really for two of those. Yeah, but, I bet but you're sorry they the, ever the, made that movie. <laughs> right, you're looking at those three cases as essentially being, you know, the, the banner of, um, you know, being a the minority uh, opinion, which I think, you know, most secondary authorities would say certainly have deviated and applied Clapper at, at the least differently. You know, they, they talk about the language is certainly pending, uh, you know, in, Clap, in Clapper, but they say that it's um, it's not really different from the Ninth Circuit test, which is real and immediate. Well, you know, if, if you're a lawyer and you're kind of a stickler for rules as they're issued by the higher courts, generally when you change the language, you know, there's certain dangers with how it may work in one application, but not necessarily uh, the other across the two different tests, right? But right. setting that aside, if you look at the Target case, um, you look at the Target case in Minnesota, the district court judge there, uh, although Clapper was mentioned in the briefs, the judge basically didn't take into consideration and just said that the defendants, uh, the Target defendants, were applying too high, too stringent of a test for Article Three standing. So, I mean, that's really... Uh, the brunt of your decisions out there post-Clapper. You know, you'll get a little more of a variation, um, you know, pre-Clapper, but I think most circuits looking at data breach cases now certainly cite to Clapper or at least, you know, recognize the need to address the case. Um, so that is the current state of affairs after the Supreme Court opinion. What do you think about different types of data? For example, uh, credit card, uh, a breach of just credit card information 
okay, that that is going to be less of a danger than a breach of social security numbers or um, other kinds of like uh, sensitive information like my bank account numbers, right? I mean, I if, if I know that my credit card is breached, I call up my credit card company and I cancel the card and I get a new card and I'm not held responsible because of the Fair Credit Billing Act. But if there's a breach of my social security number or my or even worse of my uh, financial data in my checking account and all of my various uh, investment accounts, that's that's um, a, more of a danger. So are they talking about the difference between the kinds of information and how that affects? I know because being an identity theft expert, I know certain data is going to be much more sensitive and much more of a target and much more, make me much more vulnerable to identity theft than other kinds of data. Are they talking about that at all? Uh, well, I mean, I think you see that debate in terms of uh, across different states when, when states are, uh, when you look at the state statutes, um, data breach notification laws, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times uh, you'll, you'll notice that across states um, uh, there'll be different definitions as to what is included as uh, personally identifiable information and what is not, right? So that's right. a good example because, you know, uh, California just recently added passwords, for example, right? right so right. Um, We added you know, information. Most of the other states, yeah. right, most of the other states don't recognize that. Um, you know, um, you, you'll almost... I think social security number, I'm pretty sure it's, um, you know, across the 48 different yeah, states it's territories there. that have yeah. it. I think it's all there. Right. But I don't, you know, it's a good question about credit cards because I, I think, from what I remember, I believe that that is in the California definition. Yeah, it is. I just yeah. don't remember if it's across the other ones. But anyways, um, I think you certainly see it there, right? But I think the problem here is not, it, it, it's, it's really not that simple um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's really easy to kind of, like, pick at, you know, like, uh, Judge Coe's opinion or, or, you know, even the Sony PlayStation opinion. Um, but what these judges are really grasp, uh, grappling with is, is how to figure out what the solution and what the remedies are, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I think that that's really the tough thing there, which is that, and this is why you have this kind of, like, this weird, this weird kind of, like, dichotomy between, like, Article 3 standing, which is really, you know, in layman's terms, is actually another word for damages, right? Right, right. And, and then kind of, like, damages for uh, a cause of action. So, you know, if, if you look at, you know, these three... Nice circuit decisions. You could have uh, a, a case that passes Article Three standing for damages, but then the court finds that there's no that there could be no damages, so it's thrown out in the same motion, all in the same move, anyways, right? So that's it, it's very very odd, right? But I think what the judges are trying to say is essentially like, hey, it, it, it sounds like that there is something there, right? Mm-hmm. I want to hear it. I want to entertain it. I want to see if maybe. Just listening to the facts and what's being lost, perhaps I could craft a solution. Right. But then, but then the the, the laws being what they will are being formed on a different paradigm of, of economics. Right. Um, a lot of times, the judges just can't get there with the powers and the tools that are available to them on the basis of 
precedence because, you know, the new data economy is just so unprecedented. So I I think that's what you're really seeing there. So back to your question, with regard to credit cards, I I don't know if that is... necessarily a be-all end-all because a lot of times you lose the social security number as part of some record that's being used to authenticate you for who you are. For example, pH right, right? Like personal health information. Right. That's where you may lose your, your health information. So, I mean, your, your social security number. So what do you do? I mean, do you substitute, um, you know, credit card number in lieu? And that's an interesting question because that's something actually, if you look across the sea, that's what China's trying to do. They basically recently said that they're using an algorithm to generate essentially unique ID uh, numbers for for Chinese citizens, or, or they're at least thinking of this proposal, which is kind of like a you know they call it unbreakable formula, right, like uh, right. like uh, what is it, bitcoins, right? Right, right. And they they are thinking that perhaps of using that in lieu of you know, the more traditional right. uh, identifier numbers for the states. I mean, uh, you know, is, is that going to work? Who knows? But ultimately, it's because we're in an economy which needs to use that data to, to authenticate you, you know, with who you are yep. between point A and point B, which may have a geographical distance of 5,000 miles or so, you know? Right, right. So, so we are out of time. Yeah, we're out of time. And I guess the next thing people are going to try and, you know, verify with biometrics or something to make it a little bit easier. But we are totally out of time. So thank you so much, Sheila and Mark. And just give your website and it's time to go. Mark, you want to just give your website? Oh, well, give a website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> www.kdvlaw.com. That's uh, uh, Kaufman, Dulwich, Volick, Law.com. Okay, thanks so much. And we'll have you back again. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mary. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.